0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 37, Deuteronomy chapter 27. Last time we met, we were partway into a new section of Deuteronomy that covers from chapters 26 through 30. And what makes this section substantially different than the previous 14 chapters that itself was a unit is that the nature of the sermon being given by Moses changes. Chapters 12 through 26 recited the bulk of the law that had been given to Israel almost 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. Further, it was now being done in more sermon style as Moses expounded on the meaning and the life application of many of those laws and commands that had been given near the beginning of their journey. Now here in this section we're going to move into some mysterious mystical aspects of God's Torah whereby blessings and curses are pronounced. Prophecies of future happenings regarding Israel are presented, though the people of Israel probably didn't understand the prophetic nature of what was being said. And we have deep and inscrutable spiritual truths are implied, and straightforward admonitions and warnings are laid out. Now, as a result of the extraordinary nature of this section. We're going to rest here a little while. And I'm going to delve into a few aspects of the more complex and mysterious things that moving swiftly wouldn't allow us. Chapter 27 is often said to be out of place. That it seems as though some ancient writer well after the fact, wanted to make a particular point or go back and clarify some earlier information. Some scholars think that this ancient editor discovered two or maybe even more slightly different traditions surrounding these events and simply included them both or all without regard to the difficulties that doing that would present. Other competent Bible scholars would simply prefer to skip chapter 27 altogether, just moving directly from 26 to 28. Just leap over it. And then the flow would make more sense to their minds. I can't say with certainty whether any of this is the case or not, but I can say that without doubt one has to look very carefully at chapter 27, otherwise we get the wrong idea about what's actually happening, and indeed it can be somewhat confusing. So, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 27, and we're going to read the whole chapter, that's page 226, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Then Moshe and all the leaders of Israel gave orders to the people, They said, observe all the mitzvot, the commands that I'm giving you today. When you cross the Jordan to the land Adonai your God is giving you, you're to set up large stones, put plaster on them, and after crossing over, write this Torah on them, every word, so that you can enter the land Adonai your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as Adonai, the God of your ancestors, promised you. When you've crossed the Jordan, you're to set up these stones, as I'm ordering you today, on Mount Ebal. Put plaster on them. Then you are to erect an altar to Adonai your God, an altar made of stones. You're not to use any iron tool on them, but are to build the altar of Adonai your God of uncut stones. You're to offer burnt offerings on it to Adonai your God. Also, you're to, uh, you are to uh, sacrifice peace offerings. Eat there. Be joyful in the presence of Adonai your God. You're to write on the stones all the words of this Torah very clearly. Next Moses and the Kohanim, the priests who are Levites, spoke to all of Israel and they said, Be quiet. Now listen, Israel. Today you have become the people of Adonai your God. Therefore you are to listen to what Adonai your God says and obey his mitzvot and laws that I'm giving you today. And that same day Moshe commissioned the people as follows. These are the ones who are to stand on Mount Gerizim and bless the people after you have crossed the Jordan. Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Yosef, and Benjamin. And while these are to stand on Mount Aval for the curse, Reuben, God, Asher, Zebulun, Don, Naphtali, the Levite speaking loudly will proclaim to every man of Israel a curse on anyone who makes a carved or metal image, something Adonai detests the handiwork of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. All the people are to respond by saying, Amen. A curse on anyone who dishonors his father or mother. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary marker. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who causes a blind person to lose his way on the road. All the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who interferes with justice for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, and all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his father's wife because he's violated his father's rights, and all the people are to say, Amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with any kind of an animal, and all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his sister, no matter whether she's the daughter of his father or his mother, and all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who has sexual relations with his mother-in-law, all the people are to say amen. A curse on anyone who secretly attacks a fellow member of the community. All the people are to say Amen. A curse on anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. All the people are to say Amen. A curse on anyone who does not confirm the words of this Torah by putting them into practice. All the people are to say Amen. The thing to understand is this. What we are witnessing here are covenant renewal ceremonies. Even though the Mosaic covenant was agreed to, it was handed down almost four decades earlier out in the wilderness, God was now, through Moses, calling on the people of Israel to renew their vows as regards their commitment to his covenant and to remember how and why it was established in the first place. Now I said that we are witnessing covenant renewal ceremonies, plural, more than one, even though it may not seem so at a casual reading. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, let's look at the facts. Moses was speaking at least Part of the time here. Yet part of this admonition is that there's to be a ceremony after Israel crosses the Jordan River and takes possession of Canaan. Further, verse 9 says that Moses together with the Levite priests spoke the words that were presented to the people. Those two circumstances could not have happened at the same time because Moses died before Israel crossed over the Jordan. Not allowing Moses into the promised land was a punishment imposed upon him by Jehovah in response to an incident where Moses struck a rock to bring forth water instead of speaking to it, as God had instructed him. Now further we know that Israel crossed into Canaan, just above the northern tip of the Dead Sea, right about here. Only a stone's throw from the city of Jericho. Yet in the verses just preceding the ones we read about today, it seems as though this covenant renewal ceremony is to be done on the one hand immediately upon crossing the Jordan, All right. But on the other hand, it's to, be form- it's to be performed atop the twin mountain peaks of Abal and Gerizim, which are up here. The problem is, these two mountains are around 30 miles north of Gilgal and Jericho, which is in this area. And due to their location and the number of people that would attend it, it was a journey of probably close to a week just to get here. So on the surface it implies that we have Moses in Canaan at Mount Abal, and immediately upon crossing the Jordan he's leading the priests in a covenant renewal ceremony none of which squares with any other portion of scripture. Let's see if we can untangle this. What we are dealing with are at least two and probably three different covenant renewal ceremonies. When Moses is identified as the one who is speaking, we can know with certainty that that part of the oracle took place back on the mountains of Moab, for this side of the Jordan, just days before he died, about a month later than you see Israel would cross over into Canaan. Therefore we have Moses saying to Israel as they were listening to his extended sermon that forms the bulk of Deuteronomy the words contained in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter 27. Next we have in verses 11, 12, and 13 instructions from Moses as what the people are to do later, after he's dead and after they're in Canaan. And then we have verse 14 that says, The Levites, speaking loudly, are to proclaim to every man of Israel thus and so. It says nothing of Moses joining with them. That seems at odds with the preceding verses that have Moses speaking with the Levites. So you see, what we actually have is a change in location that's occurring between verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, the location is still in Moab, where Moses is speaking. In verse 14, the location is inside of Canaan, with the Levite priests pronouncing the blessings and the curses. Therefore, as our reading today began today... The present situation was that the Hebrew people were gathered in Moab listening to Moses' grand sermon. And he is reminding them that as of today they have become God's people. Well, wait a minute. I thought they became God's people back on Mount Sinai. What's different about today? The difference is that back on Mount Sinai, the land was still just a promise, not yet fulfilled. Mm -hmm. This congregational meeting in Moab, as the Israelites were looking across the Jordan to their promised land, is essentially the Israelites' graduation ceremony. The time in the wilderness is officially over. And the time in their own land in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is beginning. You see, the crux is that many of the regulations of the Mosaic covenant are dependent upon Israel residing, settled in their own land. They couldn't even do these things until the land was in their possession. They couldn't use the required wine in ritual observance because they had no vineyards out in the wilderness. They couldn't perform first fruit ceremonies because they grew no crops and had no harvest and they had no first fruits. They couldn't eat as the Torah required because their primary food was still what? Manna. When the people of Israel are disconnected from the land of Israel, they're incomplete. While Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they could only do some of the law, not all of it. Because there was no means to do certain specified things that revolved around agriculture. Agriculture as did, for instance, at least three, and arguably five, of the seven biblical feasts. Further, at the time they were receiving this word from Moses, that first Exodus generation has died off. Those who were of the age of accountability upon leaving Egypt, defined in the Torah as those old enough to serve in the military, those were the ones who personally witnessed the original giving of the law on Mount Sinai these were the ones who shouted an affirmation that they would obey all the Torah's terms but that group was now dead and gone a divinely ordered consequence of their disobedience to the Lord by refusing to enter the promised land decades earlier thus it would be a new generation of Hebrews entering Canaan who were either young children or maybe not even yet born at the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And during this time in the wilderness, it is clear that only parts of the law were followed. Some because they couldn't be followed. And others because, well, they chose not to. In fact, apparently male circumcision hadn't been occurring out in the wilderness, or perhaps only a few did it. Therefore, a mass circumcision ceremony would occur right after entering the land. The Lord wanted this new generation who would enter into the land that was promised them so long ago to both hear the law with their own ears, and then to personally accept the terms of that covenant. Thus, the reason for Moses' words of verses 9 and 10 that today they are God's people, they are accepting his covenant. See, this is still the modern attitude of every Hebrew and also every Hebrew throughout history that each individual should affirm the law just as though it had been given to him or her personally. And that his mindset is to be as though he or she personally marched out of Egypt and stood at the foot of Mount Sinai And that principle is demonstrated here in Deuteronomy 27. Now I mentioned that another aspect of the reason that Moses considered the occasion of his sermon in Moab as the day that Israel became God's people was that they were officially receiving the land. And the Hebrews without the land are incomplete. It's ironic that today Hebrews finally do have that land again. Yet in some ways they're still incomplete. At least that's the mindset of the most religious of the Hebrews today. This is because they don't have a temple. My good friend Rabbi Baruch likes to say that in our era the Torah is, in, is inoperative. He's right. And by that he means not that the Torah is dead and gone, but that just as when the Hebrews were in the wilderness, there was simply much of the law they couldn't do. Yet the Exodus Hebrews did experience the presence of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Today's Jews do not have God's dwelling place among them even though they're back in the land. The temple is a vital part of obedience to the Torah. And thus Ezekiel's prophecies of not only a rebuilt temple but that the sacrifices... And, and other temple-dependent observances are going to begin again. Now, I'm not going to spend much time with this, but you, you, you must understand something. Most of the laws of ritual purity and of atonement for sin depend on the existence of a temple. Without the temple... Without the priests who perform the rituals, a critical link in the chain of Torah observances broken and missing. Even Shabbat cannot be fully met. They can't, you can't meet Torah standards because the Torah requires certain sacrifices for the Sabbath. And these obviously enough can't be done without a temple, without an altar, without a priesthood to perform them. All important first fruits ceremonies cannot be done because there's no temple or priesthood to whom the first fruits can be presented. Yom Kippur cannot be properly observed according to Torah standards because there's no high priest to go into a holy of holies and sprinkle blood on an ark that's gone missing for 2,500 years. I could go on for quite some time giving you examples of Torah laws and regulations that require temple and priesthood participation. And with a little more time and preparation, I could spend quite some time showing you how those required Torah rituals that cannot be performed affect other aspects of other Torah commands that on the surface don't seem to even be attached to the temple, but in fact they are, if only in an indirect way. The Torah and the temple are and have always been and will always be completely intertwined. Now that doesn't mean that it's wrong to observe some of these ceremonies or wrong to follow the commands as far as one can as a demonstration of our personal trust in, in the Lord, of, of our desire to be in harmony with Him and in His universe, our, our intent to be obedient out of our gratitude. Some of the laws can be observed in spirit only. But to use the Torah laws as any sort of self-justification or attempt at self-righteousness is more futile today than when there was a temple. To pretend that we are keeping Torah in a pure way is folly. To claim that we are fully Torah observant is hypocritical. Without a temple, without a priesthood, it's physically impossible to fully carry out Torah because too many of the procedural elements are simply unavailable to us. All the elements must be in place for all the Torah to be fully observed. The people, the land and the temple with its priesthood. It seems as though Israel has been without at least one of these elements for almost all of their existence. Therefore, you'll understand why it is that the most religious and fervent Jews have such a zealous desire to have their temple rebuilt, to have the priesthood reestablished. they full will understand their predicament. It's also fascinating to understand that in the near future, all three elements are going to exist once again, and proper Torah observance will once again be possible, yet even then only to a point. Now what I've been describing is just one of an unknown number of mysterious aspects of this section of Deuteronomy. The idea that only as of the moment of the actual and formal giving of the promised land to Israel could Israel finally fully perform its part of that mutual obligation treaty that they had established with God called the Covenant of Moses has so many facets. And I've only lightly touched upon a few of those facets. In verse 11... A fascinating aspect of the renewal ceremony is to take place. Israel is divided into two groups of six tribes each. And one group is to go to Mount Ebal, the other to ascend Mount Gerizim. And a very specific listing of the composition of each group of six is ordained, and while it's difficult to find anything particularly special about each grouping, this much can be said: the group that is assigned the task of pronouncing the blessings are made up of the two sons of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, and four of Leah's son. Technically, Leah was Jacob's first wife. The group that pronounces the curses is made up mostly of the sons of Jacob's concubines plus Reuben, who, although being Jacob's true firstborn son, was removed from that honored position due to having sexual relations with one of Jacob's concubines. And then also finally we have the youngest son of Leah. So perhaps this has something to do with the selection, but I don't know. Now what I find more interesting though is that the overall composition of the tribes of Israel has changed back to its original pre-Exodus makeup. Now, recall that we had the original twelve sons of Jacob and then Jacob shockingly adopted two of the Egyptian sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, away from him, and included them as among the tribes of Jacob. That gives him then fourteen sons, fourteen tribes. Then Joseph was removed as a tribal name, bringing the total down to 13, and then Levi was removed as a regular tribe of Israel in order to become God's priests, bringing us back to 12, but not the original 12. And this new tribal makeup is what was used to divide the land and to assign all the territories. Here, however, we have the two sons of Joseph removed from the tribal listing and Joseph added back in, plus Levi is also counted as among the regular twelve tribes. Why this happens, I'm not sure. Except that I think it's likely prophetic. We're looking ahead in prophetic books like Ezekiel. There we'll find the original tribal configuration is restored after the Messiah returns. But notice this as well. We read in Exodus 39 that the ephod of the high priest had two large stones mounted onto his shoulder straps. One stone on each shoulder strap. And upon these stones are written the names of the tribes of Israel. Six names on each stone. Now, can you picture the imagery of the two hilltops of Ebal and Gerizim as represented by the two stones on the high priest's shoulders with six tribes inscribed and each corresponding to the two hills upon which the six tribes were to present themselves. You see this parallel. There's been a great deal of conjecture about which tribes were listed together on each of the high priest's shoulder stones. I suspect that the logic behind which tribes were chosen to appear together on each hill was taken from the way the shoulder stones of the high priest were inscribed. But that's just my speculation. In verse 15, a series of 12 curses begins, and these are to be pronounced by the priests. Now the Hebrew word for curse, as used here, is arur. Now the sense of the word arur is one of divinely imposed misfortune. The disaster that befalls you is perhaps because the Lord sent that disaster upon you in his wrath. Or maybe he pulled his hand of blessing and protection upon you and he allowed evil from some source to affect you. Or that he could have intervened in something. He could have helped you. He could have shown you mercy, but he didn't. The great Hebrew sages say that the priests of the Exodus went to the mountaintops of Abal and Gerizim along with the tribal prince, possibly the chief elders too, of each tribe, divided into those two groups of six, we saw. The remaining members of the associated tribes congregated down in the large valley between Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. And for Mount Ebal the curses would be pronounced. Now 11 specific sins are elaborated. The commission of which will call down a, a curse upon the Israelite that commits that sin. And then a 12th rather general trespass is called out. Each of these 11 specific sins has actually already been dealt with in the law, and many of them have the curse of the death penalty associated with them. So why the choice of these particular 11 sins to pronounce? What's different? What's special about these? First understand that this list of sins is representative. It's not exhaustive. That is, the Torah has not now been reduced to 11 or 12 sins that bring on divine punishment. Rather, these 11 are representative of of a, a type or a category of sin. The type that can be done in secret. The type that can be very difficult for the victim to publicize or prove his or her case. In other words, they are sins that more often than not are known only to God or to the criminal and to the victim. Earthly justice by means of the law code is not likely to happen due to the secrecy of the act. Second, the first two curses brought about by specific sins concern two of the Ten Commandments, making a God image and dishonoring one's parents. Although we, we covered this at length back in Exodus, it's good to remember that at all times the Hebrews have believed and practiced that the admonition against God images follow me, the abonition against God images refers both to pagan gods and to Yehovah. No God images of any kind, of any God, are to be manufactured by the Israelites. Needless to say, this may have been the single most violated commandment of them all throughout Israelite history. And I maintain that the modern Christian denominational icons and images that we tend to use so liberally today with so little thought and a pretty heavy helping of rationalization either ride precariously along that that, that razor's edge of what constitutes making God images and perhaps I think at times it falls squarely on the side of idolatry. So I want to throw that little caution in here. Now as we move down the list of these clandestine sins, next in verse 17 we find that illegally moving of neighbors' property boundary markers mentioned. Now I'm going to point out from time to time, as I have in the past, that many of these laws and sins that we read about are very common for the cultures of that era. Babylonian boundary stones have been found with similar curses written on them for anybody who would dare move those boundaries usually describing the the, the severe punishment involved that's a combination of what the king's going to do to you and of a divine curse that will be visited upon you by the local god you've offended For the Hebrews though this was really a crime more of a crime against God than against the legal land owner. God purposefully divided up that land among the tribes of Israel in a very specific fashion. So for a man to try and change that division was a great affront to Yehovah. Further, the land, rather, the Lord owned the land of Israel so it was and remains his holy property. Messing with God's holy property is not a smart idea. It usually brings the death sentence. We must always remember this important God principle. The Israelites do not own the promised land. They are land tenants. But they're the only authorized land tenants. In the past, they've been allowed to stay in the land only so long as they obeyed God. When they passed over some line in the sand, that their rebellion became too great for even God's mercy, they were evicted for a while. It may be clear though that no one, no one other than for the Hebrews has any right to be there. God has not granted permission for foreigners to be there except as part of Israel. Verse 18 says, no one's to cause a blind person to lose his way. The idea is that no one's to take advantage of someone else's ignorance or disability by misleading them to your advantage or or, or their detriment. This is central to the fairness doctrine that's so woven into all of the Lord's commandments and it certainly violates what both the Old and New Testament state as the underlying foundation behind all laws and commands. Love the Lord God and love your neighbor as yourself. Next is that no one's to interfere with the justice system for a foreigner, a widow, or an orphan. Now obviously this is aimed at protecting the most vulnerable of society. And the violation is really, it's really more about judging unfairly. Not about a person's social or economic status. Next we get a series. Oh goodness. Next we get a series of four laws involving sexual behavior. And again, these laws are not exhaustive covering every unacceptable sexual practice. They're just representative of all of them. Verse 20 speaks of a man who has sexual relations with his stepmother, although technically it could also include his own biological mother. As sick as that sounds to us, we know that it happens. And so this is hardly a reach. Interestingly, the argument against doing such a thing isn't so much the inherent incestuous immorality of it all. Rather, it's because, as it says literally, the son who would do that has removed his father's garment. It's an affront against his father's honor. Here's that inference that I taught you about several weeks ago. We're going to see it many times in the Bible. And it is this. That in the Holy Scriptures... A wife is often seen metaphorically as the garment of her husband. Now let me remind you, this is in no way demeaning to the wife. Rather, it says she's a kind of covering for her husband. He wears her as a covering, as one word, a garment. Therefore, for a son... To have sexual relations with his own mother or stepmother is a violation of the father's exclusive sexual rights. That's the idea behind this. Verse 21 speaks of bestiality. Now as strange a practice as that may seem to us and as many off-color jokes that have been invented revolving around the subject it was actually rather common in ancient times more so in rural areas. In fact, ancient Hittite laws prohibited sex with animals and it actually permitted it with others. We see in the Pantheon of Middle and Near Eastern gods, you know, these half-human, half-animal gods and goddesses, we read in Greek mythology of similar creatures and they are the result of sexual activity between humans and animals or divinity in animals. See, this activity was largely acceptable in most societies to one degree or another, but it was completely outlawed in every circumstance in Israel. Now one doesn't have to look very far in the Bible to find the God pattern that makes bestiality unthinkable. Adam and Eve is the representative type of human sexuality and marriage union. Adam was given the opportunity to have animals as domestic partners, not sexual partners, but decided that none of them were suitable. Therefore the Lord created from him a female as the only appropriate domestic and sexual partner for him. Let me be clear. Say it again, God was not inviting Adam to have sex with animals, but Adam refused. Rather, it is that the Genesis narrative is at least partial, at least partially, excuse me, for the purpose of making it clear, that mankind is not to try to procreate or come into union with lesser beings, not of our own species. And that the only acceptable domestic companion for a man is a human woman and vice versa. It's amazing to me that apparently this lesson has to be retaught over and over again. And that nation after nation eventually figures that this law of God just doesn't apply anymore. Well, this now is followed in verse 23 with another law that essentially defines incest. A man is not to have relations with a sister or a stepsister. Next is a curse on the one who commits a violent act against another Israelite. It does not necessarily limit the acts of violence to murder. It can be assault. Verse 25 speaks of not accepting a bribe to help a murderer to go free. This is speaking of a judge or a witness or even hiring a person to commit a murder for you, hiring a hitman. The unintended consequence, you see, of such an act is that the blood guilt caused by that unjustified killing will remain upon the land until the murderer has his own life removed from him. This is a Torah principle. We've covered it carefully in here. The twelfth curse is that general one I told you about. It refers to all the other teachings of Torah, and it demands that all the Torah be followed, or the person who breaks it will be cursed. Rashi says that it essentially is an oath taken by each Israelite to uphold the entire Torah. Now notice that after every reading of a curse it's followed with an Amen from the people. A person who responds to a prayer or a vow or in this case a covenant is saying let it be so with me. It was agreement with the terms of the covenant and used as a kind of shortcut for the person to publicly accept the terms. Earlier in Exodus and Leviticus we went through this tedious process whereby God would tell Moses what to say then we'd read about what Moses said to the people then we'd read about the people repeating it and then doing it and over and over again. Page after page of the Torah was essentially repeating the same instruction at least twice almost as often three times because This is simply how it was done in the ancient Middle East. It was the custom. Here in Deuteronomy, we see a deviation from this process. We see a declaration made or instruction given, and then rather than having all the people repeat it, the people simply responded, Amen, to what had been said. Now let me end with this thought. I said at the beginning that this chapter actually speaks of multiple covenant renewal ceremonies. And no doubt there were other covenant renewal ceremonies held at what God figured was appropriate times. Why? Why did God need to have Israel keep reaffirming their covenant with him Was it for his sake? See, the reality is that again, this was a normal custom and tradition in that era. We have Assyrian, Mesopotamian, Hittite, Canaanite, other law code documents from that era that are very similar in form to what we're reading here in Deuteronomy. And what we find is that repetition saying essentially the same thing in the positive, then later on saying it in the negative, or using multiple examples. That was the norm, because it created emphasis. The curse stated concerning any regulation were always more numerous. There were more curses always than there were stated blessings. Look, any teacher or any of us who've been to school know that repetition helps us to remember as much as we hate it. The people then didn't have scrolls, they didn't have books with these instructions, you're hearing from Moses, written down so that they could easily refer to them. So saying them over and over imprinted these laws in their minds. Never forget that while Israel is God's set-apart people, they are first and foremost people. They're humans. Consciously or not, we all make decisions and communicate within the context of our era, of our culture, of our own language we find out how, ju- how true uh, that is <laughs> when we go and visit a foreign country. And things that we take for granted in our own, nation, our own nation are unknown to them. Something as simple as which side of the road you drive on varies around the world. It was no different for Israel then. It was natural for them to communicate with God. For God to communicate with them. All within the context of their own culture. Or better, within the rather extensive set of customs and traditions that were common throughout the known world at that time. Therefore, even though the Bible is inspired, for me, perhaps the larger miracle is that God's divine perfection and truth can be expressed through the imperfect and somewhat arbitrary customs and traditions of mere men that aren't always the most edifying customs and traditions. The form of the Mosaic Covenant is not heavenly. It's earthbound, intended for men to follow. The way it is structured would have been very familiar to any person of the Middle and and Near East in that era. It's the divine principles expressed in it that matters, not the form. Next week, we're going to move on into Deuteronomy chapter 28, and we're going to start studying the blessings that were pronounced by the priests. Okay? That'll do it for tonight.